I'm talking about, with each of my guests, real-life American culture. This is not some bloated, overproduced mass media conglomerate. Um, this, is, this isn't even polished. Uh, this is raw. Welcome to Deep Americana. Ray Carney, I'm here with Lance, and uh, without further ado, this is Lance, and we're going to talk about various subjects today. Um, so Lance, um, do you want to start this out with like disability, or do you want to start out with transgender stuff, or? I think they all kind of tie together, to be right. honest with you, okay. because like, like, Honestly, like we were talking about earlier, like I know a lot of trans folks and most of them are also disabled in right. some way or also experience a lot of mental health problems because it's very traumatic to be kind of forced to live as someone you're not for a long time and that will manifest as mental a lot of the time, but it's all tied together so it manifests as physical as well. I can see that. Lots so of chronic like fatigue, chronic illness, sleep problems, stuff like that. Right. Okay. Um, do you want to get into like the, the basis uh, kind of of your, your dis disability, what we were talking about a little bit earlier? So I don't know that I would classify like it has a disability in the same way that, like, my friend who has severe hemophilia has a disability. Like, like, like he, he can't go outside when it's cold or his joints lock up. That's a different kind of disability. Right. But, this is more yeah, almost even a cultural thing, a perspective on how people view people. Yeah. Right? Like, my, my issues are mainly psychological, mainly trauma-oriented. I have pretty significant post- or traumatic stress disorder, and that has manifested as a lot of different mental illnesses along the way. It's manifested as depression. Um, when I was a teenager, they thought I was bipolar, but no, just depression and dysphoria and all sorts of... Oh, gender dysphoria is an important term. Um, dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria. So, you know how, like, even if you smoke a lot of pot, you get a body high, right? And, like, you get those rushes of good feelings through your body are physical euphoria. Um, physical dysphoria is when you've got rushes of aches through your body, like when you've got the flu. Gender dysphoria is when your skin doesn't feel right. It, it's, it's like a form of body dysmorphia. Like, someone with severe body dysmorphic disorder might get a hundred plastic surgeries because their nose isn't quite right and it just drives them nuts every time they look in the mirror. Anorexia is a form of body dysmorphic disorder because they look in the mirror, I, I mean I used to have pretty significant anorexia, I'd look in the mirror and even when I could see my ribs I could only see the fat. Um, gender dysphoria is like... Is it, it like a phobia? Well it's, it's like if you put on socks that are too small or something, like, even if it isn't, like, a constant thing in your mind, like, I'm not constantly thinking, I should have a penis. It's more like, there's something off. There's something that isn't right. There's something that doesn't feel right. And, like, 
like not all trans people experience dysphoria. That's very important to say. A lot of trans people just feel that like what their gender is in their mind isn't matched up with like the societal expectations that have been dumped on them. And so they transition socially, but not medically. And that's fine too. That's very valid. I personally experience a lot of dysphoria. Um, I'm planning on having multiple surgeries. I've been on testosterone for almost seven years. I, it, like, it, it's different for everybody. Some people will like, some, some trans guys like myself, FTMs, they only ever experience dysphoria for their chests. So they get top surgery, but they're, they're fine with like all that's in their pants. They don't really care about that. And even right. if they did, surgeries aren't really there yet to make it like nothing was different, you know, like, so they just get top surgery. I actually have very, very little dysphoria about my chest. Part of it's because it never got very big, but like, I'm gonna get my tits off someday just because I have a little dysphoria about the fact that our stupid fucking society won't let me take my shirt off because I have female appearing chest. Which is ridiculous. It's insane. But, like, other than being able to go to Waterworld shirtless, I don't really care about my tits that much. I care about what's in my pants. I have severe reservations about that. It is an incredible chore just to take a shower for me, just to go to the bathroom for me, because I have to interact with that. Like, even if I hadn't had a series of sexual traumas in my life, like, I would still have dysphoria about that, well, probably. So probably not as severe. Does it, it remind you, it puts it back in your mind that you're, you're different than other people or? it's it's not that i'm different it's that like i look at it and i'm like that's supposed to be a penis where is it what the fuck am i missing there there's some um, it's colloquially known in the like ftm community as phantom boner syndrome okay but like like sometimes when i'm aroused i feel like i've got a penis I can stick in somebody. It's like phantom limb syndrome, but for right. that. So like, like, I guess the best way I could describe like gender dysphoria is like, imagine if you like woke up tomorrow and somebody had amputated all your fun bits and put the wrong ones in their place. And you're just like, what the fuck? Where did this come from? It, I, I use a metaphor sometimes that like, so imagine you were born with two noses or something like, or like one day you woke up and you had a second nose and like your name was still Ray. Right. You believed you were still Ray, but, and you believed that you were still a one nose person because that was what you were used to. That's what you have in your head. That's what your brain is telling you you are. But now you have two noses and everybody around you looks at you and they go, you're a two-nosed person. Your name is now Daphne. I'm only going to call you Daphne. And your pronouns are D, Dim, Dare. And you are only going to be addressed by that. I don't care what you say you are. That's all in your head. You are a two-nosed person and you are a Daphne. Which is 
our culture appropriating what you should be, which is it's, what is so frustrating. It's almost like an assimilation process. It's like, right. like no, you will conform. You will be like us. And like growing up, like, like not every trans person is binary either. A lot of people who are trans don't fall cleanly into one gender or another. Right. But I do. I'm binary. I'm not very binary in my presentation, but I'm very, very binary in my identity. I fully identify as a man. And growing up, like, people were telling me, you must conform. And I was saying, I want to. I just want to conform on that side. I, those motherfuckers get to play with G.I. Joe. It's not fair. Right. And I, I fully understand that as well. That the, it, it's like, because you have this or you have that, you fit into this peg or that peg, which is not how we should look at things. It should be, yeah. it should be a decision you make. It's not something you're born with, right? Well, and I always was a tomboy, like from the beginning and stuff like that. And it, I mean, this was only like 20 years ago, not even 20 years ago. And people just didn't get it. And like, you know, I had short hair and people would ask me if I was a boy or a girl and I didn't know how to respond because I knew I was a boy, but I knew I'd get in trouble if I said I was a boy after that was bullied into me. So I just, my name's Beck, nice to meet you. Like, and they'd go up to my mom and it pissed my mom off so much. She made me get my ears pierced. She told me that I could either grow my hair out or get my ears pierced because she was tired of people thinking I was a boy. So I got my ears pierced because I was not growing my hair out again. And that was like damn near traumatic right there. And I can imagine, especially you feel one way. I think I was eight. Yeah. And like, ugh, no. I eventually, after that, like that incident got it so ingrained into my head that it wasn't okay for me to want to be a boy that I like closeted myself, like, I wasn't just closeted to everybody else anymore. All of a sudden, like, I started thinking, you know, there's something wrong with me, but if I just try hard enough to be a girl, it'll happen. Fake it till you make it. So I started wearing pink and dresses, and it would only last a few weeks before I was back in sweatpants, but I kept trying and trying and trying, and I was so excited when I started puberty. Like, most... Most trans people dread it. I had this, like, anticipation that was, like, equal parts excitement and dread. Because I thought that once I got my period, the gender dysphoria would go away. I'd feel like a woman. And I got my period, and, well, now for a few days out of every month, I'm extra miserable, and that's, that's great. And, like, I was excited when my boobs started to grow, because, like, okay, if I look like a girl, I'll feel like a girl. And... Just didn't work and a little after high school I decided maybe I was non-binary I discovered that that was a thing and I'm like okay I'm, I'm like bi-gender sometimes I feel like a guy sometimes I feel like a girl and then I went to college it was a little liberal arts school up in Gunnison Western State and loved that place to death and I started like I, I started going to the gay straight alliance because I, I knew I was bi very shortly after I knew I was trans. My first crush was a guy, my second crush was a girl. I was like eight. Like, I just, I knew that 
gender wasn't the important factor for me in determining a partner. Right. It was just like how I vibed with them. And so I joined the Gay Straight Alliance. I'm like, oh, I'm bi and I'm questioning my gender. And they're like, okay, that's cool. And then, so I went through my first semester at college. And then my second semester, very early in, I was taking a shower and I was thinking about trans issues. And you know, you know how you have those shower thoughts. And like, I had this thought, like, I was like cleaning myself and I'm like, this is disgusting and my body feels wrong. And what if I transitioned? It scared the shit out of me. Right. It scared me so much that I got out of the shower and I texted my boyfriend at the time. And I'm like, like he was an RA. He was on call that night. He was busy. And I'm just like, look, I know you're busy, but I need you to talk me down because I'm really scaring myself. And he's like, you know, maybe you are. Like, it doesn't surprise me. Like... We've played around with your gender before and you're always more confident when you're like, like for, to go into gory details, pegging him or something like that. Whenever I was like in more of that masculine headspace, I was in a better shape. And so the next day I got up and I got dressed and my hair was like down to my ass, but I flipped it up and I put a beanie on and like put it in a ponytail and like, so it was just bangs, but it was up. Right. And I took an ace bandage, which if you are like trans or considering questioning your gender or anything like that, do not bind with an ace bandage. It is bad, but it's what I had. So I bound with an ace bandage, just wrapped up my chest and put on some of my more like masculine clothes. I stuffed a sock down my pants. And for the first time, like in my life, it seemed, I felt validated. I felt... I felt like I looked good when I looked in the mirror. Like when I was in my fucking prom dress and everybody was telling me I was beautiful, I'm like, no, you're wrong. And I looked in the mirror and I'm like, I'm kind of hot as a dude. And within the next few months, I kind of just put things into action. Like there, I don't know for sure what the rules are now, but there were some stupid laws at the time telling me I needed three months of therapy before I could do you, do you feel like those routine. laws were in place to dissuade you from doing what you wanted to do? Precisely. Which is ridiculous again. Oh, you want to talk ridiculous. Colorado just proposed six new laws, all of which are going to decimate, like, trans teens, LGBT teens in particular. Why was it going to do? The laws are things like uh, it becomes illegal to do certain transition-related health care on uh, people under 17. Uh, one of them is that your parents will now be in charge of all your health care up until you were 17. I, I mean, when I was in high school, I didn't even attempt transitioning or anything like that. I, I was still in my, like, weird, I'm a girl if I try hard enough stage. <laughs> but, like, like, even then... I know I wouldn't have gotten my sexual health checked if I hadn't been allowed to sign a piece of paper that said my parents wouldn't find out. I didn't, I, I was private about that. I didn't want my parents to know about that stuff. And I'm sure I never would have gotten like STD testing and stuff as a teenager if I hadn't had that option. And they're taking that away. They're taking away the confidentiality or the threatening to. That's terrible. Yeah, they're, um, very terrible. 
Yeah, there are a lot of like really scary bigoted laws that they're trying to place into effect right now. Like since the impeachment hearings and stuff, lawmakers everywhere have been trying to slip things under the rug that they don't think people are going to notice. Like super, super shady bills and stuff. Um, I mean, like raising the nicotine age to 21, for example, they slid that so far under the radar. They announced it during the impeachment trials and they made it an instant change but because there was so little information to be had, everybody was pretty sure it was six months. I work at a head shop, I'm not gonna mention which, but we sell a lot of vape stuff and we didn't even know it was illegal to sell to 18 year olds until we were six days non-compliant oh, wow. because nobody told us. And then like the next day after we found out, we placed a call into the Colorado branch of the FDA and they said, what? We are just now hearing of this. I didn't know that it has to be 21. That's good to know. I'll write it down right here. That's we've, we've been calling that branch of the FDA every week for updates, and they don't know shit. That's Most of what we've found out has been us employees doing independent research, like going on government websites and reading the fine print until it says, oh, by the way, as of February 20th, fuck 18-year-olds. Do you want to know something else shady about that particular thing, the, the 18 to 21? What's something that? else that I find shady, at least. If you are active duty military, you're grandfathered in. You can be 18 if you've got your military card. And, like, on the one hand, that's, like, I get why they did that. That's because people were going to argue, well, then you need to raise the military age, which I think they should. I think they should just make it a flat age for everything. Make it like 19, so kids are a year out of high school. There you go. But, like, the way that, the, the way that I'm starting to kind of think it is, is it, I mean, everything is connected. They're all smarter than they want us to think that they are. And they're just trying to feed the military machine. They know that a lot of stupid 18-year-olds are going to go, well, I can't have my duel anymore unless I'm in the military. Let's join the Marines. Right. We, we all got kind of upset when the law went through and, like, my store manager made some signs for the store announcing the change. And, like, one of the signs said something to the effect of, well, you can go out, ship out, get shot up, come back with severe PTSD, but fuck you if you want to smoke. <laughs> like something like that like and it's it, it's awful like yeah it, it, it's, it, it gets ridiculous that you can go out at, at these ages and, and rack up debt in college or go into the military yeah or you get married or have a baby or I mean I know they can't really set an age on when your body is able to have a baby but they can set an age for marriage, like you can get married at 16 in some states. Which is ridiculous too, you know. You can sign your life away, you cannot smoke a cigarette. <laughs> Let's talk about, um, like, medications that we've been currently giving people, SSRIs, psychotropics. Prozac Nation. Right. Yeah. Um, do you feel like, I'll say, uh, 
our hallucinogenic like mm -hmm. renaissance we're in right now, especially um, with mushrooms being de decriminalized. Yeah. Um, with that can replace SSRIs, uh, psychotropics, things of that nature. So, the thing that I think like pharmaceutical companies don't take into consideration, and then like a lot of people who do drugs but aren't like like drug users but not psychonauts like you right. know like people who aren't trying to get anything particular from it people who just want to get high for the sake of getting high i think a lot of those people don't understand that every single metabolism is different every person has gone through a million different things even in utero that have influenced how drugs will affect them now. So Prozac, SSRI, it only triggers the, it, it's a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor and it only actually prevents reuptake of certain serotonin by certain serotonin receptors. That is great for about the 35 to 45% of the population that those are the right receptors for. But six out of 10 people who are put on ridiculous doses sometimes of Prozac for treatment of their symptoms never experience any symptom relief. They just experience negative side effects. I was one of those 60%. I was, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. It was very severe for a while. So they put me on 80 fucking milligrams of Prozac every night. I got severe acid reflux and some emotional numbing. I like, like my emotions just in general didn't, it was like mood stabilization, but just like dullness. Right. But it didn't touch my depression and it didn't touch my OCD. My, my obsessive or my obsessive thoughts were still bad. I was still washing my hands until they bled. I was. I, I still had all the magical thinking, like if I walked over the wrong number of cracks with each foot, my mom would die, like stuff like that. And it, it was a nightmare. It was really hard to live with. And then I started smoking pot regularly. I, I had done pot a few times. Like when I did it in high school, I just got kind of stoned and felt good. When I started testosterone, I tried it shortly thereafter and got altogether too high because when you start HRT, you reset your body to puberty essentially. And so I was all of a sudden a 13 year old boy smoking a bowl with my 22 year old female friends and I, they, they got stoned, I got wrecked and I was scared of weed for a few years after that, but then I decided, like, I had seen so many people that it helped, and I had seen so many people that it had just mellowed out, and I knew that I was really neurotic, and I just, like, I needed, like, 14 hours of sleep every night to recover from just the anxiety draining my energy all day. And so I started with, like, a little chill. I'm a little one-hitter, just a little $5 piece of china glass. I'd load up my bowl, and I'd take two hits, and I, I couldn't smoke sativas in the beginning or even hybrids. It had to be indicas and CBD heavy strains. But I would go and I would just 
in the beginning, I'd just take two hits and then I'd go lay on my floor and stare at the ceiling for two hours because I would like, I would dissociate from it. I'd have an almost ketamine-like reaction from all the pot. Like, uh, THC can have hallucinogenic properties because yeah, of the way that it imitates anandamide. Anandamide, high levels of anandamide in your brain, it's, it's an endocannabinoid, works in your endocannabinoid system. Like, anandamide is responsible for, like, a lot of, or balancing a lot of things. Your, your whole endocannabinoid system is balanced. It balances all the other systems by, like, affecting the flow of neurotransmitters, affecting your pain signals, affecting digestion, sleep, circadian rhythms, immunity, etc. Um, but, like, like, anandamide, it gives you a good mood, it gives you faster thoughts like bigger faster thoughts you can that, that's why when you get really stoned you come up with ideas that will change the world but as soon as you get a piece of paper to write them down they're gone um but too much anandamide triggers a part of the cb1 receptor i think it's the cb1 it might be cb2 i know that anandamide and thc and cbd all trigger both but um it can trigger anxiety, it can trigger thought loops, and it can trigger mild psychosis. This is most commonly experienced as delusions of paranoia, like, I smoked this joint and now the cops are gonna get me, is the most you know, popular colloquial conception of that. But that is literally a delusion. It is literally a psychotic effect caused by excess amounts of THC. A lot of THC used to make or give me a psychedelic effect very similar to ketamine. I would dissociate. I I used to have this, I, I called it like movie theater syndrome, where I felt like I was in a movie theater and I was watching my life on the big screen. And if I wanted to, I could reach over and grab my Coke and pick it up and take a sip because I was, I was disconnected like that. Right. And, you know, that's something that you normally only experience with actual dissociatives, but just because of the way that cannabinoids are involved with every major system in your body, you can have a myriad of effects and everybody is different. I, like I said, I was really sensitive to it in the beginning, but I worked up my tolerance and eventually I graduated to a little bubbler and I could smoke half that bowl and then I could smoke all that bowl and Right. Now I do probably a dozen fucking, like, 50 milligram dabs a day, and at this point THC is just maintenance for me, but I've, it's been a really, it's been a trade-off for me, Pot. I have lost some qualities that I miss, like, I used to have very, very lucid, possibly predictive dreams, like, almost psychic. Mm -hmm. I would I would know things before they happened. Yeah, and, type stuff. yeah, exactly. Like I would live scenes that I had dreamed before. Right. And now I barely ever dream because THC keeps you in your deep sleep cycles longer, you experience less REM sleep, you don't dream much. Um I I think I used to be more sensitive and empathetic before I was just constantly numbed by the amount of permafry that I've got going on from all the pot I smoke. 
I I do get withdrawals if I don't smoke pot, and that sucks. Like sometimes when I wake up in the mornings before I take my first dab, or even when I take my first dab, I'm really nauseous because I don't have my nausea suppressed by THC yet. Right. Like sometimes I'll take my first dab of the day and I'll cough so hard I throw up. But it's worth it because when I first started smoking pot, I was on about 13 different medications, nine of which were psych meds. I was on fucking that ridiculous amount of Prozac. I was on, like, that's like the max dose of Prozac that any responsible psychiatrist or, will ever prescribe. Like medications just to counteract the bad effects of other medications, yeah, like, which a lot of people are. Like, I had to take Prilosec every night because the acid reflux from the, uh, Prozac was so bad. Um, I see. I was on Seroquel. That was awful. The the worst one. I had a really bad psychiatrist when I was about fifteen. Who like I told him that I had a lot of anxiety at night, and he said he handed me a prescription and told me to take it every night. And this prescription is for something that if you take it every night, you are only supposed to take it every night for a maximum of a month. It is most commonly prescribed as a breakthrough anxiety treatment for panic attacks. Wanna guess what this is? What is that? Xanax. Oh, yes. I was on, he started me on a super low dose, but it was an every night thing, just every single night. And that went on about two years. When I was 17, I told him I didn't wanna be addicted to a fucking benzodiazepine so he cut me cold turkey and i know i wasn't on a high dose but it was enough i went through withdrawals and i felt so bad that i went back to him and said please put me back on that i'm not ready i can't handle this and when he put me back on it he doubled my dose and then you know a year and some change away i went up to college and he got really, really bad about filling my prescriptions in time. So I'd be up in college and I'd run out of my Xanax and I'd have withdrawals and I'd, you know, not sleep the night before and have to send an email out to my professors at 6.30 in the morning saying, look, I'm going to be at class today, but I'm not gonna be at my best. I just want you to be prepared. Don't ask me a lot of questions. I might fall asleep. I might leave the room to throw up. I don't know. And I was in a really small school, so all my, and I was a fucking psychology, sociology major, so all my professors were very understanding. They would, some of them would ask me after class how I was doing, and I'd say, you know, doing all right, I'll be doing a lot better in two hours when my psychiatrist gets off his fucking lunch break and fills my script. With weed, I weaned myself off Xanax, I weaned myself off Prozac, I weaned myself off Seroquel, uh, Seroquel is also terrible for yes, withdrawals. Ser- Seroquel is, is just terrible in general. In general, but I, I, I don't even believe we should be, you know, prescribing it. When they when they hospitalized me, so I, when I was 15, my cutting got so bad that my mom actually found blood left over, and she, like, took me straight from school to a mental hospital that day that she found it, and... They did my intake and they asked if I ever had trouble sleeping. That was the question. Do you ever have trouble sleeping? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure everybody does, especially when they have severe mental health problems. 
And so they said, okay, we'll put you on Seroquel. Everyone I talked to there who hadn't reacted so badly to the Seroquel the first night that they had taken them off the Seroquel after that was on it because it zombified you enough. It kept you under control. It dumbed you down. And exactly. And like the Seroquel, it, it knocks you out. It makes you a zombie if you try to fight it. I have heard of people using it recreationally and I think they are insane because it does not sound fun. All it does well, is make you it, stupid and sleepy. Doesn't it build up in your system as well? It does. And the withdrawals for Seroquel, I dare say, might have been worse than withdrawals for Xanax. Maybe not physically, but mentally. Like, Xanax, I was shaky. I was nauseous. I was horribly anxious. Seroquel, if I ever missed a dose of that, before the pot, of course, I would try to go to sleep that night. And when I started falling into sleep, I would instead fall into sleep paralysis and be wide awake, but unable to move my body and just have terrifying vivid hallucinations. And that was not fun. So I was very, very careful about not missing my Seroquel. And it, I, I thank pot every fucking day for I'm off that shit so, now. So would you say that not say, but it sounds exactly like you've replaced, you know, your meds with, you know, something natural with pot. Most of them, yeah. I've, I've, I have made more progress in the, like, treatment of my mental health in the past, like, two years of recreational self-medication than I did in five or six years of having pills shoved, shoved down my throat, like... I feel like and when you said, like our culture, I think, is starting to come to terms with this. And like, like back then I was going to like therapy and all that too, and that wasn't really helping because I was so just fucked from the meds that I couldn't communicate my feelings, and, and it just, it wasn't working. It was really frustrating, and now I'm down to very, very few pharmaceuticals, and I'm working my way off those. Well, I think actually we should probably stop there. We're running at 40 minutes. Oh, shit. That's okay. I wanted to talk about ketamine a little bit. Well, maybe we should save that more so. Um, for another one? Yeah, because I feel like you could probably fill 30 more minutes with that and uh, a bunch of other subjects, actually. That's it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deep Americana. Share with others. Tell your family. Keep talking to each other out there. Peace, love, and guns and roses.